Let's pray as we look to Psalm 103 together. Father, Lord, forgive us for how we become stagnant and we take for granted all that you have done and what that means for us. And so today, Lord, when we look at Psalm 103, let us remember the glorious things that you have done. Let us remember all the benefits of being called yours. And let it stir our hearts and move us that our lives may look different. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 103. I just want to read it and have you follow along. I'm not going to go into every part of it today, but I just want to read it as an overview to just set our hearts to where we are going. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities." For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is one of those psalms that maybe doesn't need a whole lot. that won't stop me because it's just so incredible I don't know about your Bible but in mine there's a title with it that is the the benefits of belonging to God and I think that's really important and that's what I want to look at I want to briefly address a couple of things and then spend most of our time in in the third thing the couple of things I want to just briefly address are who are these benefits for 
And then what are these benefits? Those are the things that are probably a little clearer and most obvious. I just want to make sure that we understand, like, who are they for and and what are they? But what I want to spend more time on is this psalm is rich with language that tells us about God's posture towards us and his demeanor towards us. And I have found that to be incredibly helpful in my life. So who are these, be- these benefits for that the psalmist is talking about? See, in our culture, it's easy to think that God's promises are generic and for everyone. And so we'll read the Bible and we'll, we'll share those promises and we'll talk about them and we'll just say like, okay, this is who God is and we'll talk about how we're all God's children and how God loves everyone. And there is a, there is a degree to which that is true. God loves all of his creation. And all people are made in the image of God. There are very true things that apply from God's goodness to all people. There's common grace all over um, the world that is from God to his creation. But then there are specific promises and specific benefits that are given to his people. There's some clues in here. Verse 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Verse 13, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Verse 17, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. See, these promises and these benefits that God is laying out, that David is writing about here, are given to those who fear the Lord. And every once in a while we deal with this because it's both a difficult concept to grasp, but also a pretty straightforward one. And the straightforward part about fearing the Lord is simply this. Fearing the Lord is simply about seeing him rightly. Seeing him for who he actually is. See, we often try to define the fear of the Lord in some way that we can conjure it up in ourselves or some way that we can qualify that whatever our posture or our view of God is, that it it fits in that. And so we've talked about this before of how we will be quick to say, well, that doesn't mean fear. It means like respect or awe or or kind of like a, a wonder. And those things all play into it. But there's a reason why this word is used so much in Scripture, and it's because it's the right word to use. Those who fear him. The reason why I say it's about seeing him properly is because everyone in Scripture who comes into contact with God or with one of his angels has the same response. Fear. Think about when Jesus calms the storm, what is the disciples' first response? Fear. When Jesus walks across the water, what is their first response? Fear. It's because when we see who he is and we are in light of that, like we see ourselves in light of that, that is the natural response. 
Lack of fear when coming face to face with God is not courage, it's ignorance. How many of you were teenagers once? Okay, some of you have yet to go, just hang in there. Have you ever looked back on your teenage years and some choices you made or things that you did and think, holy cow, I am really lucky because that could have been way worse. Right? Things that you did, things you thought, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, I can make that. Like all kinds of things that pop into our heads of things that we did. And what I would say is what typically happens with us is that when you're young, you think you're brave. And when you're old, you look back and think you're ignorant, right? You look back and you think, oh, I didn't, I did not understand reality. When you're young, you think, you see it. You think, oh yeah, I got this. And when you're older, you think, what was I thinking? See, the biggest reason we don't fear the Lord, the reason we so often need to define what it means, the reason it isn't just obvious to us, and needs no explanation whatsoever is because of our ignorance. We just don't see him for all he is and who he is. We think we are more than dust. We think we can lean on our own understanding. We think that we can make up for our own sin. And Jesus sums up the fear of the Lord in in this great passage in Matthew 10. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So, so see what he's saying? He's saying, you, you worry about all these other things. You fear all of these other people of what they can do to you or fear all these circumstances of what could happen to you. He says, don't, don't be afraid of that. Don't fear those things. No, fear the one who can destroy both your body and your soul in hell. That's the natural response. But he immediately follows it with, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. The reality is there is only one who is worthy of our fear and he is worthy of our fear. He spoke all of creation into existence with the word. He holds everything together by his hands. His holiness extends for eternity. Compared to him, standing next to him, we are dust. We are rebels We are tiny and finite. That's the only one who is worthy of our fear. But Jesus says, that one who is the only one who's worthy of your fear, he is also the only one whose love for you is higher than the mountains. His love for you is abounding. He numbers all the hairs on your head. He knows you specifically and personally, in seeing you in the pit, he became flesh 
and lowered himself into the pit to rescue you and pull you out. So do not be afraid. The disciples didn't need to do a word study on fear when they saw Jesus after the resurrection. It was the natural response. But they also didn't need to do a word study on what it meant when Jesus said he loved them because they saw it in his life and they saw it in his death. Do you see it? And if you do, then know these things that are promised are for those who fear the Lord. And what are those promises? We'll look in verses three through, through six, or three through five. He forgives all your iniquity, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Like these are the benefits. And these are the things that we say, we're like, oh yeah, yeah, he forgives me. Yep, got it. He heals my soul of its, this illness, this sickness of sin, this poison of sin that has, has corrupted me. He redeems my life from the pit. Yeah, yeah, I know. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And these are the things that we say so flippantly. But they're the things that are said over and over and over again in Scripture. And they are meant to stir us. No wonder he has to tell us, don't forget. This is David telling his soul, don't forget all of these things. Don't forget all these benefits. I can't help but wonder if this psalm was in the mind of Jesus when he told the parable of the prodigal son. I just was looking at this and thinking, and I don't want, we're not going to go deep into that, but, but I'd encourage you to read it in Luke 15. But the long and the short of it is, is that the younger son, a man had two sons, and the younger son went to his father and asked for his inheritance now, rather than when his father would die. Essentially saying to his father, you're dead to me. I can do better on my own. I want out of this family, out of this world. Give me my money, and I'm out. And the father granted the request. And so the son took his inheritance and went and blew it on sinful living. And at one point, he ends up, because he has no money, he has no home, he has nowhere to go, he ends up working the only job he can find, which is one of the dirtiest ones you could possibly find, one of the lowest ones of feeding pigs, and finding himself in a place where he's actually jealous of what the pigs had to eat. That's how low he had sunk. And he realizes that even my father's servants live better than this. So I'll go back. I'll go back and I'll, I'll tell my father. I will say, like, maybe I can just come back. I'll, I'll, I'll apologize for what I've done. And maybe he'll let me back as a servant. And if you are familiar with it, you know what happens. He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate 
For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Look at all of the things that are promised in Psalm 103 that are manifested there. He forgives all your iniquities. He redeems your life from the pit. His son, who is literally feeding pigs and, it, and wishing that he could eat what the pigs would eat. He crowns you with love and mercy as he puts a ring on his hand and this robe on his back. He satisfies you with good as he prepares a banquet that will be full and overflowing. And he'll eat until he's satisfied. After wishing he could eat what the pigs would eat, he's going to eat the best food until he is full. And he, your youth is renewed like the eagles as the sun gets to be the sun again. And everything that has happened has been redeemed. This is the constant narrative through scripture and our call to one another is don't forget. How could you possibly? So all I want to do here is I want to just read these again and I want you to think. If you belong to Jesus, I want you to think of specifics of this, of what this has looked like in your life, of what the Lord has done. And if you do not belong to Jesus, if you don't know him, I want you to hear that this is the offer He forgives all your iniquity. Every sin. He heals your diseases. Changes your soul. He redeems your life from the pit. He lowered down and pulled you out. He didn't tell you to crawl up to him. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy over and over and over again. He satisfies you with good, blessing upon blessing until you're full so that your youth is renewed like eagles. He redeems and restores and renews. These are the promises for those who fear the Lord. But here's the big thing. Many people will acknowledge these things. And even right now, my hope is that for some of you, you thought about those things and thinking about communion and what you have sung this morning and your heart is stirred with gratitude like the prodigal son just in being embraced by the father. And many people will acknowledge that, that we know that it's for those who love God, who fear the Lord, who pursue him, that he works all things together for good. And, and we believe in these benefits, that we are saved, and we believe we're forgiven, and we believe that we're redeemed. But let me ask you this. As you think about all those things, what do you think God's demeanor is towards you? Think about the last week. Think about the past several days. And think about a moment where you failed. A moment where you gave in to a sinful desire, to a sinful reaction, where you had an experience or an interaction where you, in hindsight, you say, like, that's, that's not who I want to be. I didn't 
I didn't respond in faith. If you aren't sure of anything, ask the person sitting next to you. I'm sure they could help you out. Think about that moment. Feel the weight of that moment. Now picture, what is God's facial expression toward you as he watches that? Think about God with you in that moment. What is the look on his face? See, as hard as we try, most people can't get the look of disappointment out of their mind. We project onto him what we are feeling in ourselves. We're upset with ourselves, frustrated with ourselves, disappointed with ourselves, wondering why can't you do better? How many times are you going to fall into that trap? How many times are you going to think like that? And we project that on to him and that we would say, well, yes, I know he forgives and I know he loves, but we project on him kind of like a, a parent who looks at their kid and is fed up and frustrated and tired, but deep down still loves their child. But God is never fed up. He is never frustrated. He never gets tired. And in this psalm, we see that this is his posture towards us. Verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord's posture towards you is patience. Slow to anger abounding in steadfast love. What that means is that his first, the thing that you will feel, if you're hearing from the Spirit, the thing you will feel overwhelming you, flooding you, is his abounding steadfast love. He doesn't fly off the handle like we do. God doesn't overreact like we tend to do. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. That is how great his love is for you. And in the person of Jesus, we see that on display. This is one of the hardest things to get people to do, that when you are in the midst of a battle with sin, one of the hardest things to get people to do is to picture that Jesus is with them in that moment. Because what we want to think is while we're sinning, we're away from him. That he's way over here. I've strayed from God. And so even in our minds, we think I am far from him right now. So we get fooled into thinking that we're sinning in secret. But we're not. He's right there with us. And the reason why that's so hard for us to, to wrap our brains around is because it feels then so weird and so gross, depending on the sin that we are battling, to think that Jesus is there with me in that moment. And even if we could grasp that and we would look at him, we would not be able to shake the feeling that his look is some form of disgust. Maybe restrained disgust but still like disappointment and disgust. But that is not 
his posture. It is abounding in steadfast love. It is, he is slow to anger. He's patient with us. And so the way to deal with that sin is not to say, okay, I did this when I was away from him. Now I'm going to fix it so then I can go back to him. What would it look like if in the midst of that sin you realize, no, he's right here. And the only thing that I need to respond with is Jesus, help me. Help me. And he is abounding in steadfast, unchanging love for you in that moment demonstrated by the cross. When he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. When Paul says, we know God's love is demonstrated and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me ask you, what have you done that you think could mute his love for you? Let alone get rid of it, but just even mute it, even calm it down, even take the, the, the kind of the abounding part off of it. Like, okay, I know he still loves me, but it's not going to be abounding in that moment. What could you possibly have done? There is nothing. When you consider that it was when you were at your most rebellious that God, being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, saved us. It's one of the great mysteries of the gospel and probably one of the most beautiful things about it is that our sin does not discourage his love for us. Let me say that again. His, our sin does not discourage his love for us. It makes it shine all the more. One of my favorite quotes from a book that we have handed out a lot, Gentle and Lowly, is when Dane Ortland says this. He says, his joy, Jesus, his joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. So that picture of Jesus is over here, I've strayed from him, and now I'm doing this thing over here, and I know I'm not supposed to, I know I should be over there closer to him, Flipping that around and saying, no, he is with you. And not only is he with you in that moment when you turn to him and say, Jesus, help me. He's not discouraged. His joy increases. It's the whole reason he came. Paul says something similar in Romans 5 when he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You can't, you can't do anything but strengthen. Like God's love for you just is just always growing. It's steadfast. It is abounding. It's outlandish. There's no limit. In the midst of your sin, Jesus loves you. It's the reason he came. Then we also see in verse 10. So he, he loves us. He, is, he loves us deeper than we can imagine. He does not repay you for your sins. This is also in his posture. It says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us for our iniquities. 
So we talked about the prodigal son. You think about one of the things that's so fascinating about that story is there's no restitution made. The father doesn't give his son a chance to work his way back up the ladder, which also would have been gracious. If he would have said, I, I, I'm willing to welcome you back, but you're going to start at the lowest position and work your way up, that would be understandable and, and gracious. But there is no restitution made. There is no working his way back up. There's not even so much as a tiny little guilt trip. He embraces him and fully restores him in that moment. That's his posture towards you. Do you ever think about that when you sin and you think like, well, how long am I going to have to work to get back into his good graces? And he fully restores you now. Why? How can God deal with us like that and still be called just? Isn't that just saying like our sins aren't that big of a deal? And that is how sometimes we try to wrestle with that. And we say, right, that's the thing. Like I just tell people it's no big deal. Sin isn't, it's just, you know, we're just, yeah, we all make mistakes. And God just knows we all make mistakes. That's not what it is. Our iniquities and our sin causes all of the evil and the brokenness in the world. It is deep. And those of you, many of us in this room, have been hurt deeply by grave sin. And God does not just let that go. So how can he do that? How can he deal with us like that and still be called just? It's because the sins are paid for. Our iniquities were not let go. He doesn't say he lets go of your iniquities. He counts them as no big deal. He says he will not repay you according to your iniquities. Why? Because one was already crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This prophecy about Jesus shows that God says, no, our sin will be paid for. It has to for justice and for peace and for true restoration. The world doesn't have any way to deal with sin in any kind of satisfying way but because we, we can't undo what we've done and we can't get payment from someone that would make us whole for what's been done to us. Only God can make a way for the guilty to be forgiven and victims to be satisfied by justice and to be restored. True justice, true restoration, true forgiveness only through Jesus. So he doesn't repay us for our sin. But then it goes even deeper than that. He does not view you as a sinner. Right, so he loves you in the midst of your sin. Right? He doesn't make you repay him for your sin. And he doesn't even view you as a sinner. I got to tell you, theologically, in the history, like in world religions, this one's nuts. And it is so clear in Scripture. And it's clear in this verse. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You are not defined by your sin. 
It is not your identity. He takes that and he says he removes it as far as the east is from the west, meaning it isn't any longer attached to you. One of the most scandalous things, his forgiveness is scandalous. His love for sinners is scandalous. His forgiveness of the sin is scandalous. But when he looks at those who fear him and belong to him through Jesus, he sees not your sin, but the righteousness of Jesus. Just think about that for a second. When he looks at you, he sees no wrong. That's why his demeanor towards you is not one of just frustration and like, when are you going to get this? And, oh, well, I did this for you. That's the least you could do is try to help out a little bit, serve a little bit more, do some more things. He looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Jesus, not your sin. But not like a doting grandfather or a doting grandmother whose grandson can do no wrong even though they're a terror. We all know people like that, right? Have you guys ever see a league of their own? A little Stillwell that goes through the dugout or whatever? That's, that's for like 12 of you. That's totally fine. But there's this, this view of like, oh, my precious little angel. Like he's going through and punching people and like, like knocking everything over or whatever. That's not the way God views us. He's not naive to our sin. He's not naive to our brokenness. But he knows who you really are. He knows who he created you to be. And he knows who he is making you into through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why he looks at you and he says, I don't see sin. I see righteousness because of the cross. You are who he says you are because he has made all things right. You're not fooling him. You are fully known, but you are truly loved. And he's taken all that sin that entangles you and enslaves you and that the enemy will remind you of and he removes it as far as the east is from the west through the cross. Like have you ever tried to run from something that you've done? Try to ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist, hope it doesn't come up in a conversation, even try to move, switch jobs, get, change marriages, change lives just to try to get away from what you're done. And, and how does that work? It doesn't. You can't ever run from it. And what our God does is he takes it and he throws it away as far as the east is from the west so you don't have to run anymore. And it gets nervous makes people nervous a lot of times because it feels like we're being flippant with sin of like, okay, so you're saying he forgives me. He loves me in the midst of my sin. He forgives me for my sin. He doesn't look at me as a sinner. Like, well, then what's going to keep people from just saying like what, like what they did in Romans, like in Romans 6, like when, when Paul says that about where sin is increases, grace abounds even more. So they say like, well, then we should just keep going on sinning. And Paul says, no, by no means. I mean, here's the thing. It's quite the opposite. If you see that and you see him for who he is and you know who you are in light of that and you know what his expression is towards you, the last thing that's going to stir in your heart is, oh, sweet, peace out, I'm going to go do whatever I want. It's going to stir in your heart wanting to cling to him. Say, I want to be where you are. Because in you, 
my sins are removed as far as the east from the west. When I go out there, my sins are ever before me, as David says. But in you, they're gone. I'm free. In you, I have abounding love so that I'm able to love others. In you, I have this peace of being forgiven. In you, I know when I'm attached to you, I know that you're going to bring justice and I don't have to carry that burden on me. In you, I have freedom. The person who looks at their sin and says, no big deal, is the same person who looks at the cross and says, no big deal. And that person will not want to abide in Christ. But the person who feels the weight of all those things feels the freedom and the relief of being known and loved and forgiven. And finally, in that he has compassion on us. Look at verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. So, so here's the connection of these. So he loves you in the midst of your sin. He forgives you for your sin. He does not hold your sin against you. He does not see you according to your sin. You're given this new identity. And then as you and I try to walk in this identity that's been given us as renewed people, as people who are not defined by our sin, but by God's love for us, and try to live that out, he has compassion on you. And he remembers that you and I are dust. He knows you. I remember as a, like most of my sin, let me just tell you this, like there's lots of testimonies out here and lots of testimonies in this, um, in this place of worship. And for some people, you came to Christ later in life and have a lot of failures before you even came to Christ. And you look back and you say, man, before I knew Jesus, like this is what my life was like. And then I, I came to know Christ and I was redeemed and my life was changed and I'm not that person anymore. And those are beautiful stories, and I love them. But what you need to know is that those aren't the only stories. My story is that I came to know Jesus when I was really young, and the worst things about my life were after I knew Jesus. And the, and the thing that would always just strike me down, it would always, and the enemy would just pile on, is he would say, well, yeah, Jesus forgives people who don't know him yet, but you knew him. And the shame and the guilt would just beat me down. And I would try to make up for everything. I'd try to do better. And what I needed to be reminded of is God's posture toward me. That he had compassion on me. He remembers that we are dust. That our feeble attempts to walk in this identity empowered by the Spirit and lacking faith and then having faith in this mixed bag that we constantly are as we fight through this on this side of eternity, that his posture doesn't change. It's not disappointment and disgust. It's compassion because he knows. Imagine, imagine a young child trying to help a parent clean the kitchen. Some of you will have to really use your imagination for this one. Imagine that they want to help. Their desire is to help you. Their desire is to work alongside of you. They want to, to be where you are doing what you are doing. They want to help and be with you. 
But as they do that, they mess up. They don't clean dishes properly. They spill water and soap everywhere. They might drop a dish and break it. Let me ask you, if you are there with that child, when you're at your best, what is your posture towards them? How do you react when they don't clean a dish properly? How do you react when, when you have to re-clean something or they miss this one or if you have to clean up broken glass? Now remember what I said when you're at your best. Not how most of us function on a day-by-day basis. Do you snap at them? Do you chastise them? Or do you look at them and remember that they're a small child who just wants to be with you and you love them more than anything and just delight in being with them? When we... I know for me, when I'm the parent I want to be, when I'm at my best, that's my response to a small child. And God, our Father, is always at his best. He is always the Father he wants to be. He looks at the heart, and whatever is done in faith is pleasing to him. We are the ones who keep track and records of right and wrong in our own life and in others' lives. He throws our sin as far as the east is from the west. We are the one who think that we are judged by our, by our performance. Did we do a good enough job when we, did, when we served? Did we, did we do enough? Did we give enough? Did we, and he is delighted just by the faith to do the small thing. Nothing changes that posture. So that's his offer. To be loved, to be forgiven, to be given a new identity and to be given the power to walk in that identity that as we stumble and take two steps forward and one step back or sometimes three steps back to know that the posture of our Father towards us is one of compassion who knows us, who loves us, who has forgiven us. And when he sees us, he sees righteousness because of Jesus. How could we forget that? And what our posture is, the best way to demonstrate remembering it actively is that God's posture towards us is to be our posture towards others. So think about all those things. God's posture towards us in all of that. He says, go and do likewise. Are we church, as a church family, as children of God, are we slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Are we quick to forgive as we have been forgiven? Do we help people walk in freedom or do we remind them of all the things and the ways that they've fallen short? Do we have compassion on one another and remember that we are dust? That is how God has loved us and how we are called to love others. Our time on earth is temporary, it is short, but eternity is forever. And the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Our days are like grass, but his love lasts forever. So what will your response be today? Which kingdom will you live for? Which rewards will you seek? 
picture your father and his posture towards you or hear that that is the offer that is given to you in Jesus and turn and call his name and be loved by him and go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, how could we possibly forget all of your benefits? To be known by you, to be loved by you, to be forgiven and redeemed and renewed. Lord, forgive us for the false facial expressions we have projected onto you. Lord, I pray that we would both feel the weight of our sin and our rebellion to know that all that happens in the world has come through the sin of man. None of us are blameless. But to also feel the freedom and the joy that comes with knowing that you see all of that. You know all of it. And you love us. And you have forgiven us. And you have made all things right on our behalf through the cross. Through the cross we have peace with you. We've been adopted into your family. Been made heirs to everything. And Lord, let that be on display in the community around us. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for how we have received all of that mercy, all of that grace, all of that forgiveness, all of that compassion, and we have turned to the world and been bitter and cold and judgmental and self-righteous. Lord, forgive us. Soften our hearts, Lord. Let us love others in a way that points to the glorious good news of passages like Psalm 103. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.